this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, it's John Warlow. So after five years of hosting Built to Sell Radio. I've distilled the secrets from the most successful founders into the ultimate field guide, the art of selling your business, winning strategies, and secret hacks for exiting on top is now available. The art of selling your business is a playbook for punching above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Now, you may still be years away from selling, but there are actions you can take now that will make your business irresistible to an acquire in the future. And in this book, you'll get answers to your most vexing questions like, when's the right time to sell? How should I value my business? What are the biggest mistakes owners make when they sell? How do I get multiple offers? How do I attract an offer from an acquirer without looking like I'm desperate to sell? How many companies should I approach? How do I separate real acquirers from tire kickers? When in the process do I reveal my numbers? When and how do I tell my employees? How do I avoid retrading when the buyer drops their price during diligence? In the age old, how do I avoid an earnout? Along with actionable answers to the questions, You'll also get a playbook for defending yourself against the dirty tricks used by the most unscrupulous acquirers, including how to defend yourself against retrading, acquirers who intentionally set unattainable earnout goals, financing an acquirer's business, becoming a prop deal, strategic pacing, competitors posing as acquirers, accepting illiquid or overvalued shares for your business in lieu of cash and giving away your retained earnings as part of your deal. You'll also get easy-to-understand definitions of some of the most bewildering terms acquirers use in negotiating to buy your business. Stuff like tipping basket, covenant, downstroke, escrow, indemnification, earnout, Q of E, reps and warranties, churn. I'm just about to throw up just using all this industry lingo, but you'll get a definition for each of them in an easy-to-understand package. If you order The Art of Selling Your Business today, you'll receive a collection of thank you gifts to enjoy alongside the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. So cool little story for you today. The best way I can kind of describe it to you is imagine the world of online dating, right? You've got two people trying to find each other, certain level of criteria that each has things that are important to them, et cetera. My next guest, Daryl Lerner, took what he learned building an online dating app and brought it to the world of pet adoption. Imagine yourself, you're looking to get a new pet and you think you're going to adopt one, but you probably have some criteria. Maybe you need it to be hypoallergenic or there's a certain energy level that you want for your dog. Well, that's what Daryl Lerner built in this app called All pause. He was able to, in a deft move, bring more than 100,000 listings almost overnight to his app, solving the chicken or egg problem. He'll describe how he did that. He also talks about what it was like to negotiate the sale of his company to a giant. He sold his business to PetSmart. How he brought Petco, PetSmart's biggest rival, into the negotiation. And what it felt like for him as an entrepreneur to be managed by his acquirer. Here to tell you the entire story is Daryl Lerner. Daryl Lerner, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks so much, John. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'll pause. I must confess, I, you know, I've never actually used the app. I've adopted a dog though. I went to the Humane Society in Toronto. And years ago, my wife and I just got married. We thought, well, we'll give training wheels instead of having kids, we'll get a dog. And we went to the, 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 uh, the Humane Society. So I guess I did it in a very old school kind of way. Tell me about All Paws. So All Paws is what happens when uh, an online dating founder decides to tackle the pet industry. Um, 
in my prior life, I was in the online dating industry. I uh, had a very popular Facebook app for a while. Um, grew the company significantly, and I was ready for something new. I missed the early stage feel and uh, sat in an office. I'd raised some friends and family money. Um, sat in an office. I had somebody with me and literally started writing ideas on a piece of paper of what to do. And um, about 10 ideas. We were sitting there for a couple of months. And uh, the, the girl who came to work with me was like, yeah, we got to do something. And I was like, you know, we keep talking about how fun it would be to do something with pets. I'm like, let's just take the knowledge that we have from years of building a dating site and build a much better way for people to find their next pet. And uh, we got to work on what turned out to be all pause. We spent quite a bit of time uh, validating the concept. Um, you know, from the dating industry, I knew that first there had to be a critical mass of pets uh, in order for the experience to be valuable. Because just like in dating, you know, if you do a search and once you uh, add your search filters, if there's four search results, it's a useless experience. You're never coming back to that product. So I kind of investigated, um, can we get 100,000 pets right off the bat? And it turns out there were some third-party services, APIs that had pet listings. So I'm like, okay, check. We can get launch with 100,000 pets. That's enough that you know people will get interesting search results. We should so define that, API, Daryl. So, it, sorry. You know, no, no, a connection uh, for your device to another database, essentially, that allowed Correct. that database to, to be served up in your app. Yeah, so there was a, a group called, uh, a site called rescuegroups.org that basically served as, I'll call it inventory management for um, pet rescues and shelters. And one of the services they provided was the ability to upload their pets or the shelter pets onto other websites. So we were able to tap into that to get this critical mass of listings right off the bat. Um, Got so, it. But I guess at the same time, how did you reflect on the loss of control of how those listings would be displayed? Because you, dis, you didn't necessarily control that anymore at that so, point. Great question. So First of all, after years with the prior company of working on top of the Facebook platform, had a lot of experience of not being in direct control of your, of your, uh, your, your data and stuff like that. So, um, you know, that, that wasn't a shock. But one of the interesting things was uh, I spoke to the guy who ran it. And I'm like, look, I have this vision. I want to take everything from the dating world. And, you know, right now, if you try to search for pet online, there might be greed, there might be location, whatever. I'm like, I want to add like 30 search filters. I want to add, you know, temperament, uh, allergies, all these different things. And is there a way to do that with your database? And he started laughing. He goes, we have all that. He said, nobody has ever asked for that before. So wait, the rescuegroups.org had all that stuff on allergies had, and temperament? He had all like 30 different search filters. Some, you know, some organizations didn't necessarily upload all of it, but a lot of them did. And he's like, just, it's all just sitting there. No one's asked for it. And he really worked hand in hand with me in kind of customizing the product to get it to where I wanted it to be. So, you know, what we really built was a dating site. It was just pets instead of people. Um, so, you know, then to further about. So let me see if I got it straight. So rescuegroups.org offers up their database to this API. So when somebody goes onto the app, they can, they can query it. Your big idea was like, let's get a breadth of filtering criteria here so people can really choose what they're looking for in a dog or pet. And you launch with this great wealth of sort of the two-sided market. You've got one side of the market kind of nailed. Correct. So that side of the market, I was like, check, we're going to get enough pets, at least from the start. And then we'll offer the ability for uh, organizations to upload their own. But I'm like, I got to see if people want this. And so I spent, uh, you know, a few hundred dollars. I put up a coming soon page with an email capture. Say, hey, you know, uh, All Pause is going to be launching soon. Enter your email address to learn more. And ran a few hundred dollars worth of Google ads. Um, you know, adopt your next pet, 100,000 pets available for adoption to see what kind of, first of all, what kind of click rates, but then more importantly, what percent of people would give us their email address. And, you know, I... I Kind of come from the testing and optimization background as a product person. So after kind of having some fun optimizing that page and headlines and you know button copy, et cetera, we were getting 30, 35, 37% of people giving us their email address, which is just you know absurd. And it, it's a really high number. I'm like, okay, there's clearly demand for this. And um, 
It's so let me get that straight. So of, of if you had 100 people land on that landing page, 35 of them were giving you their email address. Exactly. Exactly wow. right. Once we had optimized it, and that was after quite a bit of optimization, but you know, it was kind of just me having a little fun. But at the same time, it was validating that this is going to, there's going to be a need, this is going to be interesting. And from my background, you know, in the startup world, I'm like, I think we can build a much better product, a product that's, you know, 10 times better than anything on the market. And um, so where does it go from there? So you validated it. Did you launch with Google AdWords as your- So I hired a programmer, a developer who had worked with us at the previous company, a guy I knew real well, super talented. Um, He built product in, I'm gonna say about four months. So this is, uh, we ended up launching about, I wanna say November, 2013. And uh, we, you know, I, I ended up, I decided I'm, you know, I, I can usually figure almost anything out. And, but, you know, I think one important skill for entrepreneurs is kind of figure out what they're good at, figure out where it makes sense for them to put their focus and where to delegate. Sure. I didn't have a lot of experience with ad buying and I was te- you know, doing my own tests and I just knew that it was going to be a, a really long haul for me to figure this out and optimize this started asking around, got referred to a really, really talented ad buyer. Um, one of the good things about the pet adoption industry is it's not a lot of competition for keywords because you don't have big money behind it. And we really refined our marketing funnel. By the, end, by the time we were done, we were paying five, six cents a click um, for a new user and under a dollar for a registered user. And that allowed us to really scale quickly, you know, especially once we added in some viral mechanics, um, you know, we were getting traffic from social, uh, really focused on emails. Um, so you're, and- you're, in, so you're investing in paid search to drive the once the, the consumer side of the, the two-sided market. Correct. Where did you get the money to invest in paid search? Did you raise a round of investment or how did that work? Yeah. So, uh, I was kind of in the unusual situation because the previous company, uh, which was called Snap Interactive, had done very well. Um, I was able to raise some friends and family money for my next venture, even pre-concept. So I found myself in this weird situation. I'm like, I have an office, I have an employee, I have cash in the bank, but I have no idea what to do with it. You know, kind of the opposite of every other entrepreneur. Um, But that allowed us to kind of fund the early stages of growth and, and build out the product. How much did you raise friends and family and what portion of the company did you have to give up for that? Uh, probably at the end of the day, about a million dollars. Um, I want to say probably for about a quarter-ish of the company. Got it. Okay. So that's a pretty high valuation for an idea or even <laughs> pre-idea. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So you get into it. The business is, is what's the business model? Like how, what was the vision for making money? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, good, good question. My philosophy, and especially coming from a, a dating site that we grew to uh, 100 million users um, almost entirely virally, um, you know, a little bit of kind of uh, irrational exuberance. I'm like, I don't need to worry about that. I'll, I'll figure it out when the time comes. I'm just going to focus on getting a lot of users and the rest will take care of itself, just like it did before. And started getting a lot of users. And, uh, you know, started throwing up some Google ads, you know, making a few hundred dollars a day. I'm like, this really isn't going to do the trick. I'm like, got to figure something better out. And um, we, we met a company along the way called Pet360. They owned a bunch of properties uh, in the industry. And I had to you mean out. website properties or? Yes. Um, okay. They owned uh, PetMD, Pet360.com, PetFoodDirect.com, kind of a whole variety of, of pet sites and, and apps. And I had just reached out to them to get kind of better advertising and almost immediately got an email from uh, their head of business development, subsequently led to a meeting with their CEO. Um, We decided they wanted to collaborate with us on a joint platform, a white label version of Pet360 using the All Pause backend. And we were going to have sponsorships and all that. So they put me in touch with their uh, media division, their ad sales team. And things got derailed a little bit with the platform because it turns out they were in negotiation with PetSmart and they were subsequently sold to PetSmart for $160 million. Uh, Hmm. But 
So I got pretty friendly with their two head media guys, ad sales guys. And I remember saying like, all right, well, while we're waiting for this joint platform, can we, you know, run some ads on all pause? And they're like, yeah, you know, I think we can get you some sponsorships. Uh, we could probably get you about $25,000 a quarter. And I looked at them and I said, okay, let's add a zero to that. And they laughed. I'm like, I'm serious. I'm like, I want to do 250000 a quarter. Daryl, let me, I, you lost me a little bit. So when you say to run some ads on all pause, you're referring to, uh, you know, brands like Purina and other exactly. you know, uh, dog exactly. products. So they, did, they did media sales. They had relationships with uh, all these pet brands. Um, got it. And they would get kind of deeper partnerships and sponsorships you know, beyond just traditional like Google AdSense or something like that. So the, the business model that you landed on was ad supported effectively. You were going to yes. run ads yes. on all pause. Got yes. it. A after also trying a whole bunch of other things in between, but yes. <laughs> and so were you successful in getting so, some advertising going? Yeah. So, uh, so that was a great conversation. I still remember the look on their face when I'm like, add a zero to that number. And they're like, you can't. And I'm like, why not? They're like, you know, you start explaining impressions and you just don't have the traffic. I'm like, okay, what would I need to do to achieve my goal? And they're like, well, you know, you'd need a lot more impressions and you'd need stuff that was performing at a much higher rate that added a lot more value. I'm like, okay, like, let me get back to you. And I came back to them with a plan, um, a whole bunch of just really creative ad placements, you know, uh, I mean, I'll get you a good example. Like one of our big partners, our biggest partner became Royal Canin, the pet food brand. Sure. And they specialize in breed specific pet nutrition. So one of the things we did for them is they're like biggest 13 breeds or something. Anytime someone searched, let's say for a German shepherd, a breed modal would pop up with some info, fun facts on a German shepherd, along with a coupon for uh, so smart. their German shepherd food. Um, we started on the post signup page, you know, there was a welcome. Oh, by the way, uh, you know, now that you're interested in adopting a pet, are you interested in learning more about, you know, veterinarians in your area, trainers in your area, pet food, supplements, all these different things started creating opt-in leads. So I came back to them with this whole plan and they're like, okay, this works. And they got us, um, it wasn't quite the, the 250 a quarter level, but we got two initial buys from Royal Canaan and Brevecto, which is a flea and tick manufacturer. And um, the Royal Canaan partnership really stuck and it, it did get to the levels that I wanted. Um, one of the really- well, Before you go, I, I just need to understand what was so important to you about the $250,000 a quarter? Like what, what did that mean to you? Absolutely nothing. It was just a, a 10X of the number they gave me. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I like to think big. And, you know, I literally just said, okay, you said 25,000 a quarter, add a zero to it. I was just like, okay, 25,000 a quarter is not going to support this business. I got to figure out how to make this a seven-figure revenue business and quickly. So, you know, kind of tell me what I need to do. I'll come back to you. I'll do it. Um, got it. I, you know, one of the really cool things we did with Royal Canaan, uh, we, we put in this process to confirm adoption so that we could um, find out when someone actually successfully adopted a pet from the site. And we came up with this new pet parent welcome package uh, that Royal Canaan would send out. And this was all, we were all doing it, you know, by hand, like, you know, they would literally like mail the packages, but we were testing it. We would send them a list of, you know, here's the people who have adopted a pet this month. Here's the pet they adopted. And they would say, you know, congrats on adopting, you know, Kona. Here's a, you know, here's a welcome kit from your friends at Royal Canaan. And stuff like that, you know, we really kind of emphasized this whole, uh, you know, capturing the new pet parent at the point of market entry, right? It's the one time in your adoption journey where you haven't already formed purchasing habits. And you know, more and more, we focused on that in our pitches. Um, you know, one of the really thing, fun things that we did worked both for the media deals. And then subsequently, uh, when we went to sell the company is we would do mocks of these kind of things in advance. We would mock up potential placements and these were all these different creative things. Um, you know, for PetSmart, for example, we created a post sign-up page. We presented them with a post sign-up page that said, you know, welcome to all paws. We're so excited that you're going to adopt a pet. Once you do, PetSmart wants to present you with $400 off 
a $400 new pet parent welcome package. And by the way, here are the six pet smart locations closest to your home, which we got from you know, your IP address. Oh, um, I love that. So it was, and, and actually putting that in front of these brands, they loved, you know, they loved seeing that. It wasn't just, oh, we could theoretically do this and that. And, you know, seeing it mocked up on the site, um, it, it takes the conversation up a new level from the kind of cost per thousand advertising. Exactly. And you make such a and you make such a wonderful point around reaching the dog parent at that first, you know, you know, point of market stage. entry. I would say yeah. it was so drilled into me. New pet parents reach them at the point of market entry. Point of market entry. Love it. Uh, I'm reminded of like all the all the brands that try to try to flog their products on new moms when they, they've got their little baby and like Pampers is <laughs> hawking stuff and you know, Huggies exactly, and all the rest of it. That's exactly yeah. it. That's your chance to get people, you know, when they haven't formed purchasing habits. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So how big did you get this company before you decided that it was time to sell? So we had gotten to about uh, a million and a half registered users. Um, registering meaning they created an account on the site. You didn't have to create an account, um, but then we captured much more information. We were doing uh, probably about over a million visits a month. Um, we had subsequently launched an iPhone app. It was kind of like a Tinder for uh, you know finding pets to adopt, <laughs> and that one was doing great. Um, we were getting 500 to 1,000 new downloads a day. Never spent a penny on marketing on that. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it was top 100 in the lifestyle category of the app store. And, you know, so we were kind of rocking and rolling. And, you know, these were, were pretty big numbers. And they were growing, you know, month after month, quarter after quarter. And, um, you know, a, a couple of things happened. One, you know, we, we reached a point where these ad deals, became, we became a slave to servicing them. Um, you know, it, it, they were, it was great. You know, we were doing a million dollars a year in ad deals. You know, we had a uh, big one from Royal Canaan. They kept renewing PetSmart, same thing. Um, but I felt like the business had become, you know, pitching these ad deals, these sponsorships, and then, uh, you know, putting in all the placements and then doing the reporting. And we had kind of gotten away from, you know, really focusing on growth and iterating and optimizing and all that kind of stuff. And that, you know, that's not, that wasn't super fun for me. Um, yeah. I just want to go back to something you said earlier, because I, sure. I just want to make sure I have it in my mind. Uh, the original all pause, I'll call it app. Was it a, 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 uh, web-based uh, app that I would access through a web browser on a computer. And so, it was only s subsequent to that you, you built the iPhone app? Exactly. Yeah. It, okay. We launched the website in uh, November, 2013. We launched the iPhone app, I want to say fall of 2014. Um, so, you know, and then this is getting through about 2015. Uh, totally purely coincidentally, I had purchased and read built to sell around the same time. Um, <laughs> oh boy. That's awesome. You know, I, I guess in my head, I was starting to think about, you know, okay, right now this business is, you know, really driven by whatever ideas I have. And I felt like I was kind of holding it together. Like, how do I reposition this? And you know, I really started to focus on the offering to brands and, you know, the, 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 the data we were capturing from pet owners. And again, you know, even with this advertising, with the mocks, like, Hey, we have our, our user acquisition optimized. Uh, we have this funnel, it's churning. You know, if there was a brand that could get behind it, um, you know, you just keep turning the crank and uh, it'll work really well. Um, you know, and then the other thing that happened uh, June of 2015, my dad passed away unexpectedly. And he oh, yeah. was, you know, we were super, super close and he was involved in the business with me not in a day-to-day -day role, but he had helped me raise some of the capital and in an advisory role. And, um, you know, that was obviously one of those, those life events. And, you know, at a time when I wanted to be focused on grieving and everything like that, I'm like, okay, I have a business that, you know, I had gotten to the point where we're actually running profitably, but, you know, we weren't growing and we we're kind of stagnating. And um, I, yeah, we're still growing a little bit, but not in the sense of, you know, the, from the startup world, you know, this isn't going to be a billion dollar company. This isn't going to be a unicorn. 
Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I was kind of focused on three parallel tracks at that point. One was testing some features that were getting away from adoption that were more social. I thought there might be a much larger opportunity there. And I was, you know, very quietly testing a bunch of things on the back end, you know, for the user, you know, it, it was an activity feed or create a profile of your existing pets. But I was really gathering data to see how the users would interact with those features and if there was potential to build something much bigger, you know, much more social. Um, like a Facebook for dog parents? I uh, joked uh, Instagram for pets. Instagram um, for pets. Okay, cool. And it's funny. I remember saying it to me, like, you know, during the whole second half of 2015, like, you know, the only time you would smile when talking about the business was when talking about this Instagram for pets idea. <laughs> um, you know, then I was focused a little bit on raising capital and, uh, you know, which was tough. I mean, we got, we got insane press. We were getting coverage. Good morning, America, Mashable. All, I mean, every good housekeeping, every major name. And there was never any inbound interest, which was really strange because I, you know. Inbound interest from acquirers or investors, you mean? It, from investors. Because um, I know in the past, anytime we would get a TechCrunch article, we would have, you know, 10, 10 phone calls or emails. I think people thought we were a not-for-profit, you know, uh, oh, as a, in pet adoption. And I'm just like, okay, this is going to be, you know, a slog to raise capital. And, you know, as you and uh, your audience no doubt knows, it's raising capital is a long, arduous process. And I just didn't know that my head was in it at that point, you know, after losing my dad and everything. And then the third was a sale. Um, and, you know, I started, what I really asked myself, I'm like, do I feel like I'm at the beginning of this journey or the end of this journey? And, you know, when taken together with the previous experience with Snap, that was a, you know, 10 year process, I was tired, you know, kind of the, a girl who was working with me was relocating. She was getting married. It, it kind of felt like this might be the end of the process. And I didn't know if I had, you know, another several years of real passion in it. Um, so, you know, I, I asked around for some recommendations for some bankers uh, who focused on M&A. And I distinctly remember I had a conversation. I, I, ironically, it was with the guy who was the CEO of Pet360, a guy named Brock. Um, and I remember kind of laying out my options for him. You know, I like to get advice from other people. Ultimately, I'm going to do what I think is best, but it helps to talk to people who have been down that road and sure. you know, gather all their feedback. What a And I remember him saying to me, he's like, you got to pick a path. You know, he's like, you'll, you'll execute successfully in whichever one you do, but you can't do all three. You got to pick one. And I, I, I almost at that point, I had to give myself permission to be okay with pursuing a sale. Because in a way it meant, all right, this isn't gonna be a billion dollar business. I didn't build a unicorn, but I'm like, you know what? Go ahead. Keep going. Oh. I'm like, you know what? If, if I can get some money out of this, investors get their money. And you know, I, at this point we had two and a half employees. It wasn't like I had a whole team that was you know, dependent upon me. And I can then, you know, take some time off. I'm like, that's an okay outcome. Like, and, and you know, I kind of convinced myself that I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm at peace with that outcome. And um, How, let me ask you a question because it's, I find it interesting because on one hand, the numbers you throw out are like, to me, to my eyes are, are just stunning. Like I'm looking at a million five registered users, um, you know, 500 downloads a day of your app. I mean, these are just astonishing numbers. And then when we tech, uh, talk about the size of the company, you know, two and a half employees, a million or so in revenue, it's like, it, what was that like to have this on in, in e-commerce terms, in technology terms, those numbers are like world-class, massive, but on the size of the company, it must've felt weird. Did that feel... Conflicted great. On it's a great question. It, it felt exhausting and lonely, um, but it's interesting because you know the my previous company we had done real well. We we're doing, you know, twenty million in revenue annually. We had hundred million users. This was almost like if you put an entrepreneur in a laboratory, said, "Okay, you know, here's a million dollars. We're going to lock you in for two years. Come out of it with a business that's worth more than that." 
that was kind of what it felt like. I would just sit at my desk, you know, kind of by myself every day and go, okay, what are we going to do next? What are you in the next? How do I make it bigger? Um, how do I meet people? I mean, I knew nobody in the pet industry when I went in. You know, one of the things I was most proud of is by the time we were done, you know, I, I got to know the CEOs of a lot of uh, prominent companies in the industry. Um, so it was, yeah, it, it was kind of weird. There weren't, you know, it wasn't a big office with ping pong tables like we had the last time. And it was almost, I felt like I was like in a little laboratory every day, just, you know, like churning out this, this product into, a, you know, achieving an ultimate goal of building a successful business. Awesome. Okay. So let's get into it. So you talk to Brock, he's like, pick a lane, buddy. You can't be half pregnant here. You exactly. got to do something. What next? You hired a, uh, an M&A person to... Yeah. So uh, I asked, uh, you know, tapped my network, asked for a few referrals for bankers. Um, couple said, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to be saleable. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the best time to sell a business is when you're not trying. It's a lot harder when you're trying. So, you know, I... I didn't know what to expect. And one of the bankers I spoke to said, this isn't for me, but I have someone who it might be for. And he referred me to a you know, boutique investment bank in New York called Triangle Capital. Had Triangle couple, Capital. Okay. Triangle Capital, um, you know, middle market firm. Uh, and they um, you know, had a call with them. You know, they, were, they, they weren't sure. And he's like, I don't know. He's like, uh, the, the lead guy, a guy named Richard Kestenbaum, a great guy. He's like, I want to meet you in person. I want to talk to you. And comes in, you know, we talk about the business for an hour. He's like, you come across very genuine, very enthusiastic, very passionate about this business and what you built. He said, we weren't going to take the assignment. He said, I think we can sell this business. He said, it's going to sell for seven figures. Um, the question is, is it a low seven-figure number and a high seven-figure number? That really depends on you, and it depends on how many horses we can get into the race. Uh, what was your reaction to that, to that pitch from him? Um, you know, I, I was happy to hear that he thought he could sell it. Uh, it, it. It wasn't my first rodeo. So, you know, I cautiously optimistic. You know, the idea of a low seven-figure number didn't excite me. Um, but you know, I figured, okay, let's, let's see where this goes. What did you I, think it, what did you think it could be worth? Like if low seven figures wasn't exciting, did you have any sense of what you, what would have been exciting? You know, certainly a mid to high seven figure number was a lot more interesting. Um, mm -hmm. you know, make sure, uh, investors made something and, uh, you know, make sure I came out of it with something. Um, but you know, we we didn't have a lot of cash left at that point. I mean, we were uh, we weren't losing money. But if any of these ad deals disappeared, like that would have been it. So, you know, I I figured I'm like, all right, I'm going to go down this path. Uh, I have to be all in on it. Um, I was hoping he was right. And you know, he said to me, he's like, give me a number that you will. I need to know you're serious. You know that you will absolutely sell this business for. And I started thinking. I said, it's got to be like three million dollars. You know. I said, if you can get me a deal for three million plus, I'll take it. Uh, you know, all, all other things being equal, nothing wacky. Um, and you know, I said, like honestly, anything less than that, I'm not going to do an aqua hire. And you know, if, if someone wants to pay a million dollars, this, I'd rather, even though I don't want to do it, I'd rather bet on myself, and you know, I'll build it back up. Um, but you know, we went through the process. And, and what was Richard's reaction to the three million number? He he thought it was very doable. Um, you know, just, it's funny in preparation for, uh, for this interview, I reread built to sell last night and <laughs> it was so funny. I mean, your description of the process with the, with the bankers was dead on you know, every aspect from me saying, well, we don't have a lot of cash. I can't afford a retainer to them saying, we got to have something to show that you're serious. Um, and you know, me saying, I don't want to work for an acquirer after that. And then saying, you can't tell them that, you know? We kind of rehearsed, look, your line is going to be, it's important for you, for the business to, you know, end up in good hands. You'll gladly participate in the transition. Uh, you know, you have to be, you're open-minded, but you're also an entrepreneur. So, you know, you'll see how it goes kind of thing. Uh, all how did was, Richard, that's great to hear. How did Richard coach you on answering the question, 
like, will you stick around and help us like, you know, work in the company for a while? Yeah. So he said, he's like, look, you're going to have to commit to being a part of a transition. Um, I told him, I'm like, I'm not going to relocate. And he said, that's fair. He said, so tell him you won't relocate, but you will absolutely commit to a transition, making sure that the business ends up in good hands, comes to a soft landing. And, you know, he said, tell them that, you know, you've just gone through a major life event. You know, you're, you're open-minded. You really don't have a lot of thoughts beyond that. Um, you know, you're happy to kind of see what unfolds. You know, in my mind, I knew there's no way I'm staying anywhere for an extended period of time. But, you know, he said, you can't say that. <laughs> How not to answer the question. Got it. Okay. So uh, you guys go back and forth. Richard, uh, were you were you at all concerned giving Richard your bottom line? You know, in, in, in sometimes there's a theory in real estate, right? Where you never give your bottom line to your real estate agent because you think, oh, they're maybe they're going to whisper that to the other side. And, 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 and magically, the offer you get is like, you're exactly their bottom line. Were you worried at all about sharing that level of detail with Richard? Very. So, Great point. The way I addressed it, I structured kind of an unconventional deal with them where their take, their commission on the sale went up as the price went up. So I wanted them totally motivated to get a much higher price rather than like you're saying, okay, we easily got a $3 million deal. That's, you know, so the, the more we sold for, the more they made at an increasing rate. And um, it, it definitely served, I think, keep them highly motivated. So, and, and, and that is unusual for folks who, who are listening. Oftentimes a commission goes down for exactly. each extra million you get. So you might, you know, you know, an advisor might, might make X percent on the, on the, on the first million and then X minus 20% on the second million and, and, and down. Exactly. And you went the opposite way. I remember having a discussion with my brother, Cliff, who I was partners with in the previous company. And it's a, uh, you know, a com- accomplished entrepreneur in his own right. And, um, we were having that exact discussion. He's like, look, you got to make sure your interests are aligned and, you know, let's structure something where the more the sale is, the more they make. And, you know, we kind of came up with this structure and um, I think it served us very well. Fantastic. So who does Richard shop it to? How big's the, the, the short so, list or the long list? I should also add there's uh, two other people at Triangle who I work closely with, uh, Errol Glasser and Kim Karmitz. All were great. Um, we came up with a list of about, I should say they came up with a list of about, I want to say 50 companies. Um, you know, as is normal in the process, the list cast a pretty wide net. It included some companies that, you know, maybe had pet content, but weren't pet companies. You know, but we had a pretty good feel. And certainly I did right off the bat, you know, who the four or five that would be, you know, especially interested would be. Who did, who did you think in, uh, the four or five were and why did you think they were strategic? Um, I thought, uh, I'll name a couple. I thought PetSmart for sure, because PetSmart, by buying Pet360, already participated in our business uh, and had our, our media revenue or percentage of our media revenue. Um, I also did something that uh, I have to pat myself on the back for. It was pretty strategic. So I had befriended a, a reporter, a writer, and she's like, I'll do a story on you for Forbes, but I got to have a good business angle. And for like a year, I kept pitching her all of these stories about you know, our growth and raising money and blah, 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 blah. And she's like, these aren't interesting. Finally, I, I came to her. I'm like, all right, I have something different. Let's talk about you know, the performance of our ad placements and our sponsorships, how we're allowing brands to connect with new pet parents at the point of market entry, you know, that whole, whole pitch. She's like, that's really interesting. I said, all I ask, you can write anything you want, just give me like a two or three line quote that I can write myself. And she agreed. And in the, in the quote, I talked about how we are getting deal after deal and renew, you know, renewals from partners like Royal Canyon and PetSmart because of the high performance of their placements and how this is such a great opportunity for other large retailers and brands. And sure enough, it worked like clockwork. Within a week, I had a phone call from Petco. And Petco and PetSmart are very competitive, and we were working on a pretty sizable sponsorship or ad deal with Petco. PetSmart exercised their right of first refusal to take the Petco deal, and that basically, they knew I was also starting to look into selling the company, 
that jump-started their participation in the process because so, they knew that Petco was interested in us on at some level. Love it. Give me a love, I love the Forbes angle. It's brilliant. Um, what was the right of first refusal? So with PetSmart, you, they had the ability to accept any advertising package that you were offering somebody else? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, I'm a, I don't remember the specifics, but I think when we did our ad deal with them, it gave them the right to write a first refusal. I, I want to say for any other, an ad deal with any other pet retailer, it might've even specifically said Petco uh, because they were super competitive with each other. Um, Got it. So they immediately jumped on that and that drew them into the process. Um, and to go back to your question, you know, another one I thought would have been interested was Royal Canin because we were, uh, they were our biggest partner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that kind of really opened my eyes to how so much of a, a, an M&A process comes down to timing and circumstance. Um, they never really got in the game. Uh, their, their, their home base is in Europe. And their CEO was traveling or something to that effect. They were the managing director. And they were kind of late into the game. They, they couldn't get up to speed in time. And as this process uh, went, went through, you know, you have to kind of set deadlines and when bids are, when indications of interest are due, when bids are due. And they were just trailing and never really got into it. It's so funny because as entrepreneurs, we, you know, like our company is so important to us. It's like the, 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 we think about it all day and night and we think about all the strategic reasons why company A would want to buy us, blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, yeah, well, the CEO is just kind of traveling this week or, you know, they, they had a, uh, you know, a retreat and somebody broke their leg. And so they're all focused on, you know, like it's the, the craziest things happen, but it's why we need a relatively big list of potential acquirers to, uh, to go to. I mean, when we kind of narrowed it down to, let's say the six or so who wanted, you know, the bigger book, meaning yep. all of the, all, the whole merger package, um, you know, several of them were obvious to me. Several of them were complete surprises. Companies we'd never spoken to or dealt with. Um, it, it, and those are companies that Triangle put on the list? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and what were, were the private equity groups or what were? There were a couple they, of private equity groups in there that never got, uh, never went too far with it. Um, of the final group that was interested, um, I don't think I can give names, but uh, so it came down to two who ended up making bids. Um, one was PetSmart. One was a company we had never dealt with that Essentially, it was a holding company for a bunch of different brands in the pet industry. Hmm. Um, you know, one other that got pretty far down the line was a pet food manufacturer, uh, you know, natural pet foods. Mm -hmm. uh, I had no relationship with them at all. Um, never even thought about them, but they got pretty far with us. Uh, another large pet food brand also somewhat far. I was actually surprised they didn't bid. I made a, a trip to meet them in person. Uh, they ended up not bidding, um, but ultimately they uh, triangle put out a deadline for indications of interest, and you know it's kind of sitting there going, okay, I'm you know preparing to be stood up and get nothing. And I remember um, Kim over there uh, emailing me. She's like, well, we have a bid, and she told me who it was from, and I was like, really? Like I that was the holding company I mentioned. They said I wasn't expecting that. She's like, and it's above your number. I'm like, wow. And then, um, then PetSmart came in with a bid that was also above my number. I was like, great. I'm like, we got two bids, both already above my number. I'm like, just don't, I'm like, whatever you do, don't blow this deal. Like, I, I'll take either one of them, sell. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what was Triangle's response to, <laughs> don't blow it, I'll take either one? No, they like, they you say? Know, they said, you know, we, we know what we're doing, um, you know, it'll, it'll all work out. And, you know, they kind of just prepared me for the process to come. Uh, how much, how much of a difference between the two? I know we can't talk exactly sure. what the number was, but, but on a percentage basis, how much of a difference would there have been between the two offers? Um, they were both ranges. Uh, I would say range of a couple million dollars. So, you know, probably a, 30, 40% difference. Um, okay. So it was clear that uh, one of them, which turned out to be PetSmart, was the leader. Um, you know, Triangle talked to me, they're like, we're, we're pretty sure we can get them both to come up. We think the other one will come up quite a bit. 
Um, but, uh, you know, PetSmart was the leader. And, Got it. you know, so at that point we had, we had a lot of discussions around, you know, which one is going to make sense, what's involved with me, uh, you know, what the process was like, the due diligence, uh, which I am, you know, I'm a very organized, detail-oriented person. It astounded me the level of due diligence performed during this process. Yeah, I can only imagine. When you go back, if we go back to the the, the two offers again, you mentioned they were a range. Did you mean that on the letter of intent, instead of providing a specific number, they provided you a range? Or did you mean that there was a range between the two offers? No, they both provided a range, a range of, let's say, roughly a million dollars. This is subject to you know further due diligence, blah, blah, blah. Wow. Okay. Um, these represented, these were non-binding indications of interest. And okay. so I think we went uh, with the first group, they, a bunch of them flew out to meet me. And that's another thing about the process, actually, that I found quite interesting. I had maybe four in-person meetings during all of this. Um, no, I, I had more meetings. It was harder getting ad deals than it was doing the M&A deal. I, I, I remember saying to bankers, I'm like, aren't they going to like, you know, aren't we going to have like 10 hour sessions? They're like, no, they, you know, these companies that have made acquisitions, they have their process, you know, you get them all their materials. They'll want to meet you certainly, but um, yeah, it was kind of surprising how, how few like phone calls and meetings there were. That's wow. really funny and how clinical it sounds. So these were indications of interest. That's an important distinction as opposed yes. to a letter of intent. They were an IOI. Did you, were you, did you take both of the IOIs through to the next stage or did you commit to one? So I think if memory serves, we kind of, uh, we shared more material with them over a couple of weeks, uh, had a meeting. PetSmart knew us pretty well already from our pre-existing relationship. Sure. Kind of got them to the point of like, all right, what's your, what's your real number here? And ultimately the PetSmart number ended up being a fair bit higher, not a ton, but you know, enough to make a difference. And um, then higher we, than the original range they gave you, it was at the top end of their range, and it was higher than the other offer, which ended up going above their range as well. But they wouldn't go to where pets were. Got um, it. And you know, it's kind of been these negotiations. I remember the banker saying to me, "They're like, look, you know when to push and when not to push. Like, these are each of their limits." Like. I'm like, you know, can we say let's add 500,000 because they're like, these are their numbers. Like, it's time. And, and, and what did they share with you about the body language, the tenor of the conversations, what's in the agreement that would lead them to believe that they had pushed them as far as they could? Um, I, I think it just came from their experience. You know, they seemed pretty confident. You know, they've been doing this a long time. I, I just remember Richard kind of saying to me, he's like, it's time. Like, these are their numbers. Like, you're not, he goes, if you start squeezing them anymore, you're going to run the, list, the risk of losing the deal. And, um, yeah, I, I trusted him. And so let's just be clear, because this, this is an important nuance. So the IOIs, indication of interest, uh, were ranges. You, right. you went through a, another level of diligence or meetings with both parties. Correct. Uh, and then had them firm those offers up into a letter of intent or an LOI, I'm assuming. So right? we, they, we kind of, I, I remember correctly, we kind of put a deadline uh, right after July 4th, this is 2016 of, all right, we kind of need your, your bottom line number. And at that point, you know, we, we spent about a day going back and forth with each of them. And then I went into the, the triangle office and we kind of looked at the offers and I'm like, all right, it's time to pick one and move to a letter of intent. And we picked the PetSmart offer and um, drew up a letter of intent pretty quickly and moved into the, uh, you know, really serious due diligence phase, uh, moving toward a closing date. And so a lot of water's under the bridge since then, a lot of time has passed. Have you ever personally reflected on whether Richard was right that pushing them further would have made one of them walk or... You know, again, I'll just speak from my own experience. Whenever I've sold a home, oftentimes, and I, I hate to equate selling a business, selling a home, but oftentimes I'll get some subtle pressure from my agent who says, hey, like this, you know, like this is their offer. Like this is the best we can do. 
And I've thought about it after that. I was thinking, maybe I should have gone back one more time, one more turn. Like, have you thought five years on now since the deal, was there more money? Could I have pushed further? Was Richard just trying to get a deal done versus really being genuine? No question. Uh, He was not trying, just trying to get a deal done. Um, You know, I I got to know the, the deal guy over at PetSmart pretty well. You know, look, if I had said, you know, the number is $100,000 higher or nothing, would they have done it? Maybe. Um, but it was pretty clear to me. I subsequently saw their business case and, you know, uh, well, their internal documents. This was their number. Um, you know, I don't know if they would have walked over a demand for a little more, but the, clearly the risk reward didn't justify making the demand based on kind of the, the banker's evaluation, as well as my own evaluation, things like I was very happy with that number. It was, you know, a lot more than my original kind of number. So I didn't want to do anything to risk the deal. I was like, I spent the next three months, like, you know, kind of just closing my eyes, like, just don't fall apart. Don't fall apart. Like, you know, it it becomes, it's, it becomes virtually impossible to run your business as normal while a deal like this is, is about to happen. Yeah. I think people would be, I mean, people have heard about, due diligence as, as being this very difficult period where the attention to detail and all these things are, are incredibly important. But I think it would be interesting for folks to hear what was the most peculiar, surprising thing that you were asked for in the diligence period that you're like, you want to see what? Um, I, well, I think the most surprising thing was just truly the level i mean i i you know the level of of the volume of requests like i'm like look you know we're a two and a half person company right there's at this point you know 100 grand in the bank like there's not a lot to do and you know they had simpson and thatcher's ip attorney quizzing me on stuff um i remember in one case in particular there was we had hired an outside developer to work on one feature like over a couple of weeks he worked with our developer on it. it was a common application feature. And they didn't love the language in the freelance agreement we had signed with him. And I was just they're like, you know, we, we want him to go to, you know, we want to have a new agreement or something like that. And I'm just like, guys, this is someone I haven't spoken to in three years. I dealt with for, you know, a minute and a half. He doesn't know I exist. I'm like, I, I'm telling you, if we go to him, it's going to do more harm than good. He, his, his role is something, it's a feature that's not even on the product. And we spent a considerable amount of time on this. I'm like, look, I'll rep whatever you need me to rep to. You know, uh, ultimately, part of the deal structure was there was a million dollar holdback against any future claims. I'm like, I'm fine with that. There's not going to be any claims. Um, you know, there was, I mean, initial resolutions from like the formation of the business they didn't love. We had a you know, redo a resolution, basically affirming all the prior resolutions. Um, Crazy stuff. I mean, every piece of paper in my office ended up in their hands by the time we were done. It was. Uh, How did you guys stick handle? Because you, Richard, you and Richard had had this long conversation about like your role and how not to answer the question. So, how did they structure your role? You know, post sale. Yeah. So it turned out to be really interesting and somewhat surprising. Um, I remember the, the offer that we did not take, the language was that I would agree to be an employee for uh, one year, um, anything further by mutual agreement, and I did not have to relocate. So I'm like, okay, I'm fine with that. And PetSmart's offer, which ended up turning out to cause some friction, was that I was a consultant for up to one year. I could be terminated at any time. Uh, I didn't have to work full-time and I didn't have to relocate. Um, and, you know, one, one interesting thing was, uh, you know, it's funny when you're negotiating these terms, like you're so focused on the big picture, but I remember adding in that no travel, right? Travel was not required because they were based in Phoenix and I'm in New York. And about a week after the deal was done, uh, I get an email from one of the, the high ups there. All right, everyone on the old pause deal team, you know, please be in Phoenix on Monday. And I'm like, yeah, this is why I put in the no travel thing. 
And I remember talking to a couple of my contacts over there and they're like, look, I know that, you know, you like to please and you want to do the right thing and you, you still care and all that. But I'm telling you, this is going to set the tone for the next year. You have to say no. And I felt really badly doing it. But I said, you know, I'm sorry, my agreement is no travel. That doesn't work for me. And our, our main contact over there, um, who I had a really good relationship with, the guy who did the deal, uh, he called me. He's like, look, you know, they really want the deal team there. Is there any shot sometime in the next few weeks you could come out for a day? I said, of course. I said, why couldn't they have asked like that? Like, that is perfectly reasonable. Of course I will be there. That's very different from, you know, be here next Monday. Um, but, you know, it, it was funny because I was like, I'm glad that I got that, uh, you know, that clause in the, in, the, in the deal. It's so interesting, right? Because as entrepreneurs, like nobody tells us what to do. You're like, be here next Monday. What are you kidding me? Exactly. <laughs> like, no. But when it's couched as like, this would be a favor. And we, you know, like, blah, 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 it's totally a different reaction. Absolutely. But he's like working for some giant company. He's like, when I say jump, you say how high. And if I want you on, you know. Well, that's exactly what, what my, my contacts there said to me. They're like, that's what he's used to. They use that exact terminology, right? If he says yeah. jump, they say how high. Um, and I am not used to it. I've worked for myself my entire life. Yeah. So, you know, that was kind of eye-opening. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Did you have any sort of earnout that you had to achieve or was it simply a consulting no. contract on demand, you were available, et cetera? Uh, it was a, exactly described. It was consulting on demand, um, the only thing was, as I said, there was a million dollar holdback, uh, which I took on the entirety of personally, rather than having any investors subject to that. Um, oh, that was generous of you. Yeah, I wanted, you know, I wanted them to do as well as possible. So, um, you know, that was that was on me. But other than that, yeah, they, they kept me the full year. And I used to joke to people, they would ask, how's it going? I'm like, well, I work from home. I work part time. I've already gotten my money. That said, this has been one of the most stressful years of my life. <laughs> really? It was just, you know, I'm used to, it, it, it was hard to teach myself that I didn't have to care as much, right? It wasn't my product. It wasn't my decision anymore. They paid me for it. And their goals were very different than my goals. And when things were broken, whereas I, I was used to having a panic attack, you know, it didn't have the same importance to them. It was hard to separate myself from my baby. I, I actually did a lot of reading on, uh, you know, looking for advice on, you know, how to handle working with an acquirer post post transaction. And finally, I read one piece, um, I think on Quora, and it was, uh, you know, that really hit home with me. And it was basically, be zen, just best efforts, be zen about everything. You know, aim to please and. You know, but understand it's not yours. And, you but know. again, what a difference for most entrepreneurs, right? Who take ownership, who are action oriented, who are, you know, like they live and die the, the result. And it to was, like flip a switch like that is. It was so tough. hard. The, flip, the flipping of the switch for me really took place over the entirety of that year. It was, it took a long time for me to be like, all right, you know, emails aren't going out this morning, you know. Okay. Like I'll let them know. <laughs> Zen. You know, that was, that was actually, I mean, I literally said, like, okay, just be sad about it. Let them know. And I remember Brock giving me advice, telling me, you know, anytime you respond, just make sure that you show, you know, keep saying any way I can help, you know, I'm happy to, you know, I'm available to help, whatever you need, just everything on paper, always, you know, make clear that you're trying to help them. You're available. Don't say anything that could ever be, you know, used against you. Sure. And, In writing for sure. Yeah. That was really the approach I, I finally got around to. When you sold, how much of your listings, how many of your listings, I guess I mean what proportion of your listings yep. were from the original rescuegroups.org organization? Was it still the vast majority or? No, it's a good question. So um, by the time we were we sold, we probably had in the neighborhood of 250 to 300,000 pets at a time. I would say about 100 were the original rescue group's pets. 100 were actually had kind of a, a I joke, a frenemies relationship with a, a competitor called Adopt-A-Pet, which is, like, I think, the second largest um, site in the industry. And we had about 100,000 listings from them as well uh, through a, a strange, uh, strange partnership. Um, the guy who runs it was a great guy. 
And then we got a, about another 50 to 100,000 through direct listings, shelters signing up on their own. And did those relationships with rescuegroups.org, rescuegroup.org, and, and Adopted Pet, were they scrutinized as part of PetSmart's diligence? Was that something they wanted to dig into further? Not as much as you would have thought. Uh, you know, I know we sent a bunch of stuff to their technology folks. Um, they weren't focused on that very much. Uh, yeah, again, I mean, I don't know if that I have a specific example, but the things that I would have focused on weren't the thing. They were really focused on legal. There was a lot of scrutiny. We had like a really small line of credit, like a $50,000 credit line. That was something you asked for something peculiar and they spent a ton of time on. That had to be closed prior to the deal closing in order so for not to break a covenant for one of their larger credit facilities. So mm. like that was like a major, major focus. Like you have to prove this is closed. Um, you know, trying to figure out exactly what how much cash was going to be in the bank at the time of the sale so that the sale could be adjusted by that cash. And I'm like, you know, literally, like we're talking $16,000, but it was screwed up. Like, but no, they, they didn't focus. They didn't focus a lot on running the product. Um, and in fact, you know, for most of my year there, I continued to run it uh, almost business as usual. Yeah, it, uh, it makes sense. Can you please take us inside, take me inside the conversation that you had with one of those original investors? Uh, I'd love to know how you handled the conversation, what their reaction was, where it happened. Can you paint the picture for me? Yeah, so uh, the reactions varied. I, you know, I kind of told a bunch of people what I was thinking. And you know, I laid out, I'm like, look, we have, we're in an unusual scenario. Like most startups, you know, 90 plus percent of them fail. Most of them are either you know, a, a, an out or a home run. And, and I said, we're in a weird position where we're going to hit a double or a triple. Um, and it's going to be strange because like, you know, you're, you're basically going to get your money back uh, if I'm able to execute a sale. Um, and, you know, some of them, I mean, some were, were people I, were, I was close to and they're like, you know, look, whatever, whatever you do, great. Others I had no relationship with or no close relationship with, you know, they didn't, they didn't really care. Um, you know, a couple of people were, just thrilled to get a check back. They're like, you know, we kind of considered this found money. We wrote it off and made the investment. Uh, you know, a couple others had no reaction, kind of ran the gamut. Um, but, you know, I, they all knew, or at least most of them knew about my dad and everything. They kind of understood the situation. And, you know, I had made clear, like, look, you know, we've built a great business, but, you know, there's not a lot of cash in the bank. And if we continue forward, there's a risk of getting nothing. And I think that this is the right move uh, for, for everybody. Yeah. Did you buy yourself any sort of trophy or reward for selling? Uh, bought my wife a treadmill. That, that was her big <laughs> request. Um, it's, well, actually, the, the house that you're looking at uh, uh, is probably the big trophy. But um, Good for you. Know, you. Uh, thank you. Well, listen, there are a lot of memories, I'm sure. That'll be great. Uh, you know, on the smaller side, I think there were a couple of things that I remember in particular. One was um, that that trip out to Phoenix that I mentioned uh, right after the deal closed when I ultimately did go there. Um, you know, the meeting was on a Monday and I said to my wife, who's a teacher, like, let's make a little trip out of it. And so, you know, we booked Friday, Saturday, Sunday at the Four Seasons in Scottsdale. And I'm like, let's get a suite. Hopefully you charged PetSmart for that. No, they, they paid. Actually Come on, for, man. They paid. <laughs> They paid for Sunday and Monday at the West. End. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, I paid Friday, Saturday at the Four Seasons. I'm like, no, we can, we can book a suite. Like, no, yeah, it's, I mean, not that I had lived like a pauper before this, but, you know, it's an extra 500 a night. Yeah, great. Let's, you know, let's do it. Let's have some fun. Good for you. <laughs> I love have, uh, hearing your story of, uh, of how you spent the money, which is great. <laughs> uh, listen, I really appreciate you sharing your story with, with such candor. Um, how can people, if people want to reach, I know you've got a couple of projects, nothing major that you want to disclose well, or reveal. Maybe you do. Tell me yeah, what's going on. So, now. Well, I'm still in stealth mode, but um, after kind of three years of uh, decompressing, taking some time, you know, turning down some job offers and trying to figure out what the hell it is I wanted to do. 
Dude, you are totally unemployable, by the way. I'm just <laughs> going to tell you that right out of the gate. <laughs> so this is what I do, you know? Um, so, and I came to that realization. So uh, last spring, um, around the beginning of the pandemic, uh, my brother and I started talking and we came up with a shared vision around um, you know, better connecting with your friends and network. And he and I are partnering again and uh, we're, it's still kind of in stealth mode, but we're well into development on a project in the social messenger space that we're Great. super excited about. That's awesome. Well, yeah. that's, so. you've let that little dangle there. That'll be, make me curious for a few months for sure. Stay, stay Is there, tuned. Yeah. Stay tuned on that. Is, do you, are you like a LinkedIn guy? Are you cool? Do yeah. people want to reach out to you on LinkedIn or what's sure. left? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I think it's or LinkedIn. any other social channels that you uh, use. Twitter, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn both are under my name, Daryl Lerner, D-A-R-R-E-L-L-L-E-R-N-E-R. Um, if you misspell it, you'll probably find it anyway. That's not yeah, well, we'll put it. We'll put that <laughs> stuff in the, in the show notes at uh, builttosellradio.com. So Twitter and LinkedIn, yeah. Daryl, it was uh, a pleasure. Thank you. This was fun reliving the story. And I I hope I was able to share some valuable insights for your audience. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.